Let's now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8, we'll read through the whole chapter. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper when you have eaten and are full. Then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by keeping his commandments, by not keeping his commandments, his judgments and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, then you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish, as the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're taking a brief uh, intermission from our weekly uh, studies of the Heidelberg Catechism. Some of you may know that it was a, a long custom and tradition. I think it might even have been in older church orders that following uh, a communion service, uh, it would not only be preceded by a, a service calling for self-examination, but there would be an applicatory sermon uh, following the observation of the Lord's Supper, a sermon that focuses on thanksgiving and uh, Christian living as an appropriate response to the grace of God that uh, has been uh, especially remembered and celebrated in the morning service. 
And so we're, we're following that. I don't always do that, but on occasion I, uh, choose a text that is serviceable to, to that end of, uh, focusing on the response of gratitude to God for His wondrous grace. And such we have tonight. Uh, Moses in this chapter, in fact, in this whole section of the book of Deuteronomy, is reviewing the history of God's care for Israel now as they are about to enter into the promised land. And uh, that history of God's grace, his redeeming, preserving power, is the basis for the call to faith and obedience that is proclaimed uh, through this book and in this chapter that we've read. That's the pattern of uh, of the gospel. That's the grammar of the gospel. I think Sinclair Ferguson speaks of the grammar of the gospel. And that is that the indicative always comes first. And you find that in the epistles. First you have the declaration, the statement of what God has done. And only on the basis of that grace that God reveals in Christ do we have the imperatives, the following commands that teach us how to live in response uh, to that grace. That's contrary to the religions of this world that usually begin with imperatives. Uh, the religions of this world basically amount to a program of uh, self-improvement in order to gain God's favor. And the gospel, of course, is altogether different than that. Uh, we are justified freely by grace. And uh, our motivation and uh, the power to uh, live lives that are pleasing to God is grounded in this gospel grace. Uh we, this morning we remember our Lord's death, and uh, it's on that that basis of this grace revealed in Christ that we then ask, as we sang in Psalm 116, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits for me? I will take the cup of salvation. I will call upon him as long as I live. We will yield ourselves as willing servants who have in fact been liberated from the bondage of sin so that we might glorify God for his grace. Now, God's care for Israel in the wilderness, as we read in this chapter, included trials, trials in the wilderness that were intended uh, for their good, afflictions that were designed for their highest good, uh, that is, their holiness, and uh, the resulting blessing of God upon their lives. And, of course, God's priorities for his uh, people have not changed. God's saving grace to us in Christ is uh, with a view of conforming us also to the image of his Son. Uh, we are uh, partakers of, of his holiness. Uh, that is the purpose of, of chastening or afflictions that test us, that try us, as we read in Hebrews chapter 12. And so God's priorities for our lives uh have not changed from those priorities he had for God's people back in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, nor has uh, the way in which God accomplishes those priorities changed. The Lord still uses trials and testings and affliction to accomplish those spiritual goals in our lives. And so we want to hear our text in uh, in view of our own present lives and our own circumstances that in our context we might appreciate uh, the teaching of God's word here, that God graciously gives trials uh, for our sanctification. 
And we begin by considering those, those trials, uh, as the Lord's testing. Now, it's clear that there's a close relationship between, uh, trials and testing and, uh, chastening or, or discipline, I suppose. In fact, in verse five, we read, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. And uh, it's not that this subject of chastening just comes here out of the blue, but in connection with what we read before in terms of the testings, the trials of the wilderness, we're given to see that that was God's fatherly correction and discipline for his children. Now, in order to appreciate that, we need to be honest uh, with the fact that that such uh, testing and uh, related uh, correction or discipline is hard. It sometimes involves uh, suffering physical deprivation or pain. The Lord allowed you to hunger, we read. And that wasn't just an occasional twinge of hunger. The Lord brought Israel into a situation where they wondered where they were going to get their next meal. How are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? It appeared to be a very desperate situation of life or death. And God's testing, it meant 40 years in the wilderness. Now again, to understand that, we need to know something of the history that God judged the previous generation for their disobedience and unbelief. Both of those things are explained, particularly in the book of Hebrews, as the reason why that first generation did not enter into the land of Canaan. They didn't believe in God's promise and His power to bring them into the land. They rebelled against Him. And God judged that entire generation so that everyone from the age of 20 years on up was refused entrance into the land except for for Joshua and Caleb. And the rest of them perished in the wilderness. Forty years wandering. But those that were not yet 20 years old, they also were included in that, that correction. They didn't perish in the wilderness, but they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And that meant for those that were close to 20, they were close to the age of 60 at this point. They had spent 40 years in the wilderness. And that meant that they lived without a settled home. That meant that they were brought through many dangers, toils, and snares, and fears, and sorrows. Their faith was tested in various ways, manifold ways. In the book of Hebrews, we read in verse 12 that... Uh, no chastening, or rather it's verse 11, uh, that no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, uh, but painful. And so this testing, this experience of this generation in the wilderness was hard. So testing is hard. And secondly, testing is God's humbling work. He humbled you, we read in verse 3. Now God humbles people, uh, by bringing them low in their circumstances, bringing them down. Sometimes that means financial loss. Sometimes it means the loss of health. Sometimes it means suffering uh, in, in the form of opposition from others or suffering in their vocation, their job, 
These are various ways in which God humbles people by, by actually bringing them low in their circumstances. That means they might move from a situation in which they are strong and self-reliant and independent to a situation where they depend upon others. That's a humbling situation. Now, we know in Scripture that God's humbling work may be the direct result of, of sin and of pride. We have the account of Nebuchadnezzar who exalted himself. Isn't this this great Babylon which I have built? And God humbled him, took away his senses, basically. So for a time, he ate grass like an animal. God humbled him in terms of his outward uh, circumstances. He brings the wicked low. And it is an exercise of God's sovereignty. And people who are humbled in terms of their circumstances ought to recognize God's hand and in response, humble themselves. You see, there's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference between outward circumstances that bring a person low and an internal response that recognizes God's hand, leading one to humble themselves. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. People who are feeling the mighty hand of God, but they're called to respond by humbling themselves. God's testing is humbling work. But thirdly, we must see that God's testing is from his loving hand. And Israel, during their experience in uh, the wilderness, were given ample evidence of this. In verse 2 we read, You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. In verse 15, again, the Lord led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness. In other words, their wanderings were not simply random. Now, you can read the actual uh, account of the different encampments of Israel through this period of wilderness wandering, and it, it appears like they were they were randomly being called to move here and then move there and move here. Why? Well, the cloud and pillar led them onward. They were being led by God according to His will, by His presence. And that's an important reminder too. When your when your life seems to be uh, pummeled about with circumstances that seem to be random and senseless, and you're in the dark as to where uh, you're going and what God is doing. Yet in such circumstances, you can be confident that God's hand is upon your life, that he's leading you, like the way he led uh, Israel in the wilderness. His grace was evident to them. And the Lord also provided for them all the way. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7, we read of the Lord's care for them in the wilderness. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. In verse 4, your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Affliction uh, is hard. 
but it must not blind us to the ways in which God cares for us and shows his goodness and mercy. And if we're attentive to those things, even in trouble, we can recognize his, his fatherly hand providing for us. In verse 5, again, it says, You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. And our reading from Hebrews chapter 12 elaborates on that discipline, that chastening. Quoting from the Proverbs, Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and corrects every son or daughter whom he receives. In other words, the trials, the testings that Israel experienced in the wilderness, though they were hard, though they were humbling, yet God manifested his care for them. And they were to understand in their hearts that God was dealing with them as a father deals with his children. That's the emphasis. You should know in your heart. Take it to heart. Don't fail to see the hand of God. Isn't that the great danger that we face in the midst of trials? We face trials on the job. We blame the boss. We blame the circumstances. We face trials in our relationships, in our marriage. And we can fail to see the hand of God humbling us, dealing with us in a way that is intended for our spiritual growth and good. It doesn't really matter the source of these trials, right? In the, in the letter to the Hebrews, why were these Hebrew Christians suffering? We're given, given no indication that it was some particular sin that they were guilty of, that God was punishing them for. In fact, when you look at the context, they appeared to be suffering for the faith. They were suffering from their fellow Hebrews because they had come to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they are called to recognize the hand of God. Not simply see the hand of people. Not simply see the power of a, of an oppressive government. It occurred to me that in the past years, uh, when we were, uh, tested and tried and humbled by the circumstances of COVID-19 and all the government regulations and all the issues and problems that raised, so often our energies were spent in resistance or rejection or complaints and problems with the powers that be and with the circumstances. And it occurred to me at one point that knowing a little bit about church history, there appears to be a, a difference between the way our spiritual ancestors would deal with such things, whether it be plague or whether it would be war or whether it would even be oppressive uh, leaders. They would recognize the hand of God. And they would recognize that they were being given a message by God, and that message included humbling themselves for their sins. But in order to do that, we need to recognize the hand of God. And we need to believe His good and gracious intention. Whatever the means may be, whether they involve people, whether they involve viruses or accidents or whatever that may be, we believe in a sovereign God who's in control over all these things, whose power and whose jurisdiction over the world and our lives extends infinitely beyond the best of earthly fathers. And whatever form his chastening might take, we are to see his hand and, and believe that it is sent in love. The Lord's testing is hard, it's humbling, but it's from his loving hand. 
In that connection, we also consider the Lord's purpose or the Lord's purposes. In our text, uh, we read the words, to know what is was in your heart. The Lord humbled you to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, that fits into the whole idea of, of testing, right? Uh, people conduct tests in order to uh, find something out. And uh, we might say God uh, tests people to to find what they're made of. Now, that language might be objectionable to us because we immediately draw a conclusion, but it's it's language that we find elsewhere in Scripture with respect to the testing of Hezekiah. The Lord tested him so that uh, he might know what uh, was in his heart. But that does raise a problem for us, right? Because we would ask, well, God doesn't know already what's in our hearts? And, of course, the answer to that is, well, yes, of course. God knows us absolutely, perfectly. But people don't know themselves very well, and uh, people don't often know what's in their heart, or people don't show what they're made of until they face such testing. And God's purpose is to bring out what's in the heart. And God's purpose is to glorify himself, to glorify his grace in his children when he brings out weakness in their hearts and they're humbled by it and they turn to him and call upon him and they prove his grace and they're strengthened in their weaknesses. And God brings out strengths by his grace so that they glorify him through testing. God's purpose is to deepen the faith of his children, deepen their love and their obedience to him. That's God's purpose with respect to his children. We we can't deny, according to Scripture, that God has other purposes. We can't ignore that there is uh, sometimes, in fact, often another, another result in the lives of people who face testing. And that is, it exposes hearts that are not believing. It exposes hearts that are uh, distrusting and unwilling. And the people are warned against that, right, in this passage. Even as they're warned in the letter to Hebrews against the response of unbelief and distrust. God's purpose is to bring out uh, what is in our hearts and lives, to glorify his grace in his children for their further sanctification. And that means that God's purpose is also to inwardly humble us. I already made a distinction here, and we need to see that this distinction is found in our text between uh, a kind of objective work of God that humbles people and his intention that they would be inwardly humbled through it. In other words, we have the language, he humbled you. It's just a fact. He brought them low. But we also read twice that his purpose of testing was to humble them, to bring about a change in their hearts and their inner lives. You see, people can be humbled outwardly while their hearts rage against God. In the prophet of, uh, prophecy of Jeremiah, we, uh, we read in chapter 5, O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. 
That's a response of unbelief and stubbornness in the face of God's uh, discipline and punishment there. But God's aim is to humble us spiritually with submission and trust, leading to the, to the obedience of children. In verse 16, the Lord fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. His intention was to humble them in the way of a deepening knowledge of themselves, a deepening dependence upon God, a deepening faith, a deepening obedience. In that connection, God's aim and purpose in testing is to show us the way of living by faith. In verse 3, we read that, uh, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now, in, in connection with this passage and this verse, that has special reference to God's provision of manna. Remember the situation? Israel, they had no resources of their own in the wilderness. They would starve. They would die without God's provision. And so God promised bread from heaven. And God fulfilled his word, providing them bread from heaven day after day after day for 40 years. But that was intended to teach them to rely on God's word. Everything that he says, that they might know, that they might know with conviction from experience that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we can be sure that one of the most crucial indicators of profiting from trials is a deepening conviction of the truth of God's word, a deepening conviction of the practical relevance of God's word, a deepening conviction of the goodness of God's word, a deepening conviction of the power of God's word. Use that as a measure of whether or not we profit from trials and afflictions. Does it bring us to cling to God more and more as he's revealed himself in Scripture? Remember how our Lord Jesus fight, uh, Christ faced it testing and trials in the wilderness? Well, he actually quoted this passage when uh, Satan uh, tempted him to uh, avoid the sufferings that belonged to his office as the, as the Messiah and to deviate from the path and, and get a quick fix by turning stones into, into bread. And he refused. And he quoted this passage, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he held fast to his obedience in the face of suffering. In fact, with every temptation, the Lord Jesus quoted scripture and showed that the word of God dwelled in him. An experiential knowledge that we live by the word of God is the most important indicator of our profit from trials and affliction. Before I was afflicted, the psalmist says in Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Affliction brought him back to the word with a deeper appreciation of its truth, its goodness, its power. 
its practical relevance, the fact that it applies very directly to my life and circumstances. That's the Lord's aim through affliction, this kind of sanctification and uh, and growth. And in that connection, we hear the Lord's command uh, in conclusion, verses 6 and 7, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to fear him, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out, valleys and hills, and it goes on with this description of God's gracious provision for them. Now, when we hear, therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him, we must not think, wow, that sounds very Old Testamentish. No, brothers and sisters, this is a description of sanctification. This is a description of God's will for us as his redeemed people. This is a description of what it means to be partakers of his holiness, right? Remember how uh, the writer to the Hebrews says that that is the God's intention in chastening, that we might be partakers of his holiness. That's what it means to practice and to grow in Christian living. Remember the third use of the law, as reflected in the catechism. Actually, the main use of the law, how I am to show gratitude for deliverance in Christ. And there are two main answers to that question. How are we to show gratitude for our deliverance? And the, the first is prayer, even though it's not in that order. The chief part of gratitude is prayer. I will call upon the Lord as long as I live. And along with that is walking according to God's law, walking according to God's commandments. That, that's the proof of reverence for God. That's the, the evidence of the fear of God, walking in his will. That's the, the pathway of love for God. And it's important that we realize that on this point, we live in the same relationship to God as Israel of old. We belong to this one covenant of grace where there is the same uh, relationship between promise and demand today as there was back then. In every covenant there are contained two parts. And based upon these rich promises of God's grace, we are obliged to cling to this one God, to love him, to serve him. We're not to think that Israel stood in an entirely different relationship to God than we do in the New Testament on these questions. No. The relationship between promise and demand remains the same. Oh, yes, there are differences, and that difference especially pertains to how the riches of God's redeeming grace have been revealed, not simply through a, a sacrificial system where the shedding of blood proclaimed the free forgiveness of sins, but revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ who by his once-for-all sacrifice delivered us from the curse of the law. But that redemption that redeems us from the curse of the law doesn't, doesn't deliver us in a sense that we escape now from the authority of the law. No, the authority of the law hasn't changed. And the purpose of the law even also is mapping out that pathway of faith and love for God hasn't changed. We live under his commanding as well as his promising word. In fact, when you, when you look at this letter to the Hebrews, 
if anything, uh, the change in terms of, of the riches of God's revelation in Christ only increase uh, this this obligation of redeemed sinners to love and to serve God. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We heard this morning, or in Hebrews chapter 12, we read, See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Yes, that's the response of gratitude and love for a God who saved us at such a cost. Now our possession of the kingdom is not in doubt. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, we read in verse 7. A land of brooks of water, of fountains, etc. Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom, Jesus assured his disciples. But the way of living for that kingdom is still the way of righteousness. Think of the Sermon on the Mount, right? A sermon that that pro- proclaims the way of righteous living in fellowship with our Father, trusting in Him. And God is so intent on teaching this that He graciously uses trials to promote it. And we're to recognize that, be thankful for it, and gladly pursue His will. Pursue holiness, the next letter, uh, chapter to the letter to the Hebrews says, Pursue peace with all men and holiness, without which no one shall see the Lord. Yes, the, the kingdom of God is is certain to believers. And believers are those who cling to God. Believers are those who believe in His promises. And it's such a faith, it's such a belief that motivates them uh, to Christian living. And it's like you see that uh, even even in this chapter. The, the assurance that God is bringing them into the land But at the same time, the fact that entry into the land cannot be separated from the pathway of faith in this God who brings us there. Now you see that in verse 1 where it says, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. Yes, heaven is promised to believers, everyone. Heaven is assured to believers, everyone. But no believer will separate the goal from the life that leads there. And that's a life of faith and a life of obedience, a life of real love, a life of consecration and devotion to this Savior who so loved us as to liberate us from the bondage of going our own way living our own lives on our terms. We've been rescued from that by amazing grace. And it's our delight. It's our delight to seek more and more to walk in his ways. And with those priorities, recognizing that God even uses trials and afflictions to advance that goal, we won't despise the chastening of the Lord. And we won't faint when we're corrected by him but will strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for our feet. 
will persevere, will run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Amen.